When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase Today. Visit Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit Squarespace.com and enter offer code CanadaLand at checkout. Carl Wilson changed how we talk about music. I I don't think that's hyperbole. Before Wilson released Let's Talk About Love, his book uh, in 2007, we had a pretty good idea of what was art and what was trash, what was important rock and, and what was consumer schlock. But Wilson dared to break ranks with music critic orthodoxy and say, hey, what about Celine Dion? What is actually going on there? Are her millions of fans just tacky idiots or or are they coming at her from a totally different place than me? And can I get to that place and listen from that place? Now, what resulted from him asking that question from, from his tiny bomb of a book was a culture war between rockists and poptimists in which the poptimists decisively won. I mean, think about it. Is Kanye's stuff art or is it pop? That is a trickier question to answer than it would have been 10 years ago. Now, that's kind of a conversation, you know, like what should music criticism be doing or do we need a new kind of music criticism? It's usually a pretty esoteric conversation. I mean, music criticism itself is something that only appeals to some people and music criticism about music criticism is a subsection of those people. But that is not how Carl Wilson's book was received. The book played out on a much bigger stage than that. Carl Wilson got name-checked by James Franco. He talked about the book on the Colbert Report. The book was reissued with essays from Chris Novoselic from Nirvana and from Nick Hornby, who wrote High Fidelity. None of this is in the playbook for what is supposed to happen, even on a very good day, when a Canadian critic publishes an extended essay. 
As an admirer of Carl's stuff, I was baffled when the Globe and Mail packaged him out. I was then thrilled when he became Slate's music critic, thrilled again when he became Spin Magazine's senior critic, and then baffled once more last week when he left or lost that job, I'm not really sure, just a month after he took it on. I am very curious to know what went on there. I am very curious to know what's going on with Carl, with Spin Magazine, with music criticism itself, and Carl Wilson will join me in a minute to discuss it. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that lets you create really great looking websites. I think that how the websites look is a really big part of this. If you go and check it out, what you get to do within seconds of clicking onto the site is start adapting these incredibly smartly designed, simply designed, elegantly designed, very modern looking website templates that Squarespace's designers have set up for you to play with. You very quickly enter in your own information, start dragging and dropping your own photographs and imagery. And what you end up with looks expensive. It looks like a site that a lot of development went into. In fact, a lot of development did go into it, just not by you. Anybody who needs a website should have a look at this. But I think that specifically, this is a great service for designers who need a portfolio site, photographers. If you need a website for a brick and mortar store, or if you've got an e-commerce store or some hybrid of the two, anything where it's really important for you to look good on the web, Squarespace is a good option. It's good for blogging. It's good for restaurants. It's good for musicians. What you end up with is a site that just works on any screen, on any device. It is responsive design. It's a site that is backed up by 24-7 support from the Squarespace team. Go have a look now. Start playing with it. 
You don't have to enter a credit card in to start building a website. You got two weeks to make a decision about that. And if you do decide to start with them, packages start at just $8 a month when you sign up for a year. You get an additional 10% off when you enter the promo code CANADALAND. Thank you again, Squarespace. Better websites for all. So what happened at Spin? You started, I I read a perfectly delightful article about asses by you. (laughs) And then uh, grand opening, grand closing. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about four pieces for them. Um, so yeah, to backtrack, I guess, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was cruising along working for Slade and Hazlitt and various other places. And, um, I got word from a friend that Craig Marks, who was the new editor of Spin at that point, um, was hired in June, um, that he wanted to get in touch with me and he did. And he started courting me to become their senior critic. Um, and I actually kept saying no, because I was happy working at Slade and, but, um, but the slate gig is kind of a halftime job, and so yeah. I have to compensate with other things. And he just kept raising the fee and, and, and lowering the amount of work that I would have to do for it um, to the point where I couldn't say no. And we were going along. <laughs> and then uh, last week I uh, saw on Twitter some vague references where music critic friends were like, we should just buy Spin and save it from itself. And I was like, what's going on? And then one of the tweets finally linked to a story on Pointer uh, where the headline was, what's next for Spin magazine? And was full of speculation that Craig was being let go. And they talked to Craig and he was like, it was, it would not be accurate to say that I am no longer the editor, <laughs> which was the kind of location you never want to hear. So I dropped him an email and said, hey, I'm hearing worrying things. What's going on? He's like, yeah, um, I'll get back to you in a few hours. And then I went out for the evening. When I came home, there was an email from Craig saying, yeah, today was my last day at Spin. And, and and you learned shortly thereafter that that meant it was also your... It it wasn't actually clear that that was what it meant. Um, what Craig said was that he was going to talk to the... So what had happened, which I didn't really understand was happening, is that during the summer, shortly after uh, Craig was hired, and I think maybe around the time I was hired, Spin changed CEOs, uh-huh. which is something that's been happening frequently at Spin for the past several years. Um Spin got a big infusion of venture capital, and I guess the investors have been sort of churning through CEOs, and now the guy... Like four in two years. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, and the person who they have now, um, I don't know very much about, but he's like a 32-year-old guy who had started this website, Death and Taxes. I don't know if you know that. It's sort Vaguely. of like an aggregator or like a you know one of those sites that kind of just rewrites all the culture news of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess it's done reasonably well. And so they thought of him as kind of a young hotshot. And um, I don't want to get into the confidential stuff that Craig told me, but basically they wanted to make his working di- conditions much less favorable. And he, after negotiating for a while, was like, I can't work this way. But he was going to talk to the guy and see if they were open to still keeping me on and explain the deal that we'd made. But I felt like at that point, I was like, you know, it's only been a month and I feel like I can sort of recover the ground that I've lost yeah. now. But if I hang around for another few months and then they say that they don't have room for me, I could be left sort of hanging in the wind. So I just felt like the whole the whole situation seemed dangerous on that level. A, a bad way to start a relationship. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, I, one of the reasons I kept saying no at the beginning was I was like, well, spin to me doesn't feel like a thing. 
2014, you know, a friend of mine compared it to going to work for Cream in the 90s. Yeah. You know, like, it's just like, it's still around, but is it really part of the conversation? But it's weird because on the one hand, you know, rewinding to when you began as a music critic, that must have been kind of like an aspirational thing, like to be the chief critic at Spin. I mean, what more could you hope for? Absolutely, yeah. And then you kind of get there and it's not there anymore. Yeah. But I mean, I had that sense, you know, you just get the sense, you know, I was thinking, how, when was the last time I read an article in Spin? Yeah. And it had been a long time. So, and you know, I think part of Craig's plan was that, was feeling that I would bring some audience with me and help to turn that around in whatever parts of the plan that he had to turn things yeah. around. Um, and that seemed potentially true because of social media, the way that most of us end up reading things now, it's not necessarily that publication dependent. So it seemed like that strategy could work, but it wasn't given an opportunity to see if it would. I mean, not to get too lost in the weeds of spins, you know, specific troubles. Uh, is this indicative of like larger trends? And I mean, certainly, you know, larger trends in magazines and print journalism, but specifically, you know, what I want to talk with you about today is, is music criticism. And, uh, you know, I read this article, the, the British music press, which was once such a like, voracious beast of competing magazines and gossip and reviews down to like one publication doing 10,000 circulation a week from like a quarter of a million a week. It just seems like there is something bigger happening. Yeah, I, I, I read that saying, well, it was actually a BBC radio documentary about the sort of decline of the British music press. That's and, right. And at one point there collectively it was like a couple of million readers a week for all of those publications. Right, for like NME. Yeah, and yeah. NME and, and, and smash hits and sounds and new music. Yeah, and so, you know, it's kind of extra extraordinary. And the same thing has happened definitely in the specialty music press in North America. I think we never had quite the hothouse atmosphere that the British music press had. Yeah. But certainly, you know, music magazines were a real going concern as little as sort of 12 years ago. And now I think that people tend to come by their music information in the process of coming by all their other information and the things that seem to thrive um, are more sort of general interest or general culture things that cover music as part of what they do. You know, there are still specialty music websites that do okay, but I'd say with the exception of Pitchfork, yeah, none of them feel like massive forces. At the core of this whole thing of music criticism is just a service journalism service that was provided. Should I buy this album or not? And if people aren't buying albums and they don't need a review to tell them whether to buy it or not. Yeah, I mean, I think it's similar to what's happening in newspapers in that the crisis reveals to you what was going on before. Because, you know, for a long time, I would have resisted the idea that the service journalism element of music criticism was the most important thing about it. Especially you know, when you spend your time tr trying to write essays that are more than a thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, exactly. But what you realize is when the, was that that whole economy depended on there being record labels mm -hmm. that would buy advertising <laughs> in in music publications and that that depends on people buying records you know sort of the same way that the sports page or the crossword once kind of was the loss leader that lets you do political journalism it feels like yeah the thumbs up thumbs down element of music criticism was the loss leader that let you do the more complex thing and then you've got um you know people still are hunting for new music but like you suggest you've got social media for like the, re the recommendations from one's friends especially when you're talking about something that's so clannish as music taste is going to be a big factor in driving people to finding new music and then you've got i mean you talk to people from silicon valley like in all these new streaming services and discovery algorithms trying to actually gauge from which songs you skip and, and which songs you want to replay 
figuring out a mathematical formula for everybody's taste and then suggesting the music to them based on, I mean, it's like you're being replaced by robots. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, it's it's interesting. A lot of professional critics that I know also have gone to work for those streaming services serving as kind of the um, curators for people of things. So they all like write genre overviews. They'll make lists. They'll do, you know, they'll recommend here's the, here's the greatest pop songs of, this particular year, all of these kinds of different kinds of bits of service journalism they can do to help people guide their streaming choices. Yeah, but it's yeah. not so different than like a, a blender list of, you know. Yeah, except that it's tied directly to this like player where, yeah. you, where you then go and hear the thing immediately. And yeah, but then there's the algorithm. And it's, you know, to me, the distressing thing about a future ruled by algorithms as opposed to by this kind of critical curation is that it's all more of the same, right? That's, yeah. what, that's what the algorithm operates on. So the opportunity to have your taste challenged and questioned and dissected and to think about it on any other level isn't an algorithm doesn't help you do that, right? It does like it doesn't say what I know you don't like this kind of thing, but listen to it anyway. <laughs> you know, right. an algorithm won't do that. <laughs> Okay, so adding up uh, the factors that are killing music criticism, death of print, death of the album, rise of the algorithm, rise of the robots. Can we add you to that list? Is your work specifically in part to blame? And and I will explain what I mean by that. Um, In your book, Let's Talk About Love, you kind of started this whole reaction to rock snobbery. And and what what is like the, the kind of the cult of the music critic and the, and the reader of the music critic, which I was for many years happily, you know, a part of as a consumer of this stuff. Like it, it thrives on rock snobbery. So you know, if if you are like a leading poptimist and and you're encouraging people like, no, let's consider Celine Dion, let's consider Miley Cyrus. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know that Miley Cyrus fans are reading music criticism to find out if they are going to buy their next, you know. So if, if everything, if that whole world of, you know, that was sort of part of that whole like Dylanologist, Griel Marcus kind of hoarding, obsessive, lyric obsessed, bootleg hunting kind of music obsessive um, is challenged like specifically by you and, and I think kind of like almost a movement that you were um, a part of and maybe even like a, a leading voice in, were you not like shooting music criticism itself in the face when you did that? Well, um, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, take all the responsibility, but I think, I think that my book was kind of a, a crystallization and distillation and it's kind of tried to move that conversation, but that conversation was already going on. And I, yeah. you know, I think that it was, it was just picking up something that was in the air. People were going there already and you said it well. Yeah. And I think that in retrospect, we can see that the changes that are now really apparent that the internet was bringing to music discovery and music discussion were partly responsible for the way that moved along with some kind of sort of pendulum swinging back as well. I think the nineties were kind of a, you know, peak period of rock snobbery and that um, the two thousands brought that kind of reassessment of why it had become such a, you know, small camp embattled kind of conversation and, and, the desire to touch something larger and get back into the swing of the mainstream conversation was strong. And I think that cycle has gone on throughout the history of music criticism. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it, what I tried to do in the book was call for a different kind of music criticism. And again, you know, that the naivete of that might've been that we didn't see yet how that underlying 
taste-making function was, in fact, powering and allowing us to do all the other things. That but, it was an economic framework. Yeah. And, yeah. But, like, but what I was trying to do in the book was say, let's have a conversation that doesn't objectify our snobbery. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're free to hold the most obscure and carefully winnowed musical taste that you want, but represent that as a personal thing and the result of your experiences and and the result of your particular perspective and engage in that conversation with readers rather than sort of bludgeoning them with your taste. Right. Present your taste as kind of a, a portrait that you've painted and invite responses in kind. And in some ways that's what the internet does do. You know, it's you know, a lot of music discussion has moved out of music magazines and onto message boards and then, you know, various kinds of forums like that. You know, or at it, at its basis to YouTube comment threats. <laughs> um, right, right. But but that kind of the idea that the idea that if we if we t- take responsibility for the for the personalness and specificity and 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 sort of sightedness of our tastes that we can have a more kind of open and democratic conversation about what art means to us and and move beyond this kind of 20th century framework of the authority and the sort of middle brow aspiring to learn kind of reader, you know? Yeah. And, and you've been writing that kind of criticism and like, it's just different. And, and you bring into a conversation about it, things like class and race, which I think were not really considered in a classic Rolling Stone assessment of, is this a good album? It, they were only considered in the level where the music was kind of assessed for its level of activism about those things. Yeah. You know, the idea that, that ideally music would be protest music rather than the idea that music is constantly representing presenting these things about us, whether, you know, without thinking about it, it's it's always sort of exhibiting the symptoms of how the society is structured. And then we can talk about that without calling on artists to be some kind of, you know, movement leaders. Yeah. And and w- when I was kind of like most um, engaged in, in, in that kind of like, you know, Rolling Stone hierarchy of what's, of what's good and what's bad, even though I kind of felt like I'm in the club of people with excellent taste and it seemed incredibly important to me, I was totally blind to things like, you know, if you'd have asked me, in, you know, in, in high school, what kind of music you like, I, I would say, I like everything. I like all kinds of music except for hip hop and country. And uh, somehow the Beastie Boys got a pass. Right. You know? And Mysteriously really, like, enough. Right. I, I make an exception for this one group, and I have something about them playing their own instruments or something, and I would leave out the fact that they're like a bunch of white Jewish guys, and I'm a white Jewish guy, and maybe there's something there. And then, you know, I kind of like got off that high horse just in time to catch some of the best hip-hop that was ever made in the 90s. And, of course, it was the best hip-hop, perhaps, because I happened to be, you know, in university at that time. But but it was the best hip-hop, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in the middle <laughs> let's, of Let's just say, let's it, just yeah. agree it was. Um, but it's incredible what happens when you kind of like, you know, I just sort of had this fascistic, I wouldn't listen to hip-hop in any kind of an open or, or, or critical or forget about open and cr- critical, like, pleasure-seeking way. And I wouldn't allow the pleasures of that music to kind of actually penetrate a hierarchy of what's good and what's bad and what instruments mean and, and what rock and roll should be and, and you know, uh, and, and all kinds of, th- you know, class judgments about whether it's okay to boast about things or, or aspire to own, you know, all of that was preventing me from enjoying and why not enjoy, right? Anyhow, it's just, uh, these are things that your that book kind of like put its finger on for me. And, and so now we have this kind of new criticism that you're doing where I'm, I'm reading like, oh, like a really thoughtful and fun. It's not like a cultural studies essay about the rise of the ass and about, you know, what that has to say about like the rise of black music from a, a separate subdivision to being kind of the reigning force and, and how it's kind of, I don't know, like, and then, but then you get into a feminist discourse. Like there's all kinds of interesting ways of looking at it, but 
in expanding criticism, the business model is is contracting, and, and maybe not in an unrelated way. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting because I think that one of the factors involved in all of these changes is that we've moved from sort of a cultural economy of scarcity to one of non-scarcity, right? Like part of the reason that people invested as much in, in defending their camps and not listening to things outside of their wheelhouse at one time was that it took an effort to do that. You'd have to, you know, go buy records. You'd have to go or at least sort of spend time listening to radio stations that maybe weren't your thing. Now, you know, it's, any, at any whim that you have to check something out, yeah. you can be listening to it 30 seconds later. And that creates a, a completely different, you know, there's no opportunity cost in that really. And so, you know, then you go, oh, well, you know, I don't know anything about what's happening in in Nashville country. What, what are they listening to on, on country radio? Those hicks out in the South. <laughs> and, then, and then, you you know, you look up one article, maybe you look at Wikipedia and find out what the top 10 country singles last year were, and then you go listen to them. And so there's just this sort of seamless movement. You can fall down a rabbit hole of a whole world um, of music in, in, in an afternoon or less. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think there are things to be said about the pluses and minuses of that, you know, that, that that lack of effort maybe also results in a in a lack of reflection, you know, because you're not taking your time over things. But it's also, but it's still a kind of incredible luxury, you know. I think the dream of the universal jukebox always existed, and and yeah. now we live it. Anything you got into back then, and the effort that it required, there was a promise of like I could become a country guy, and and I won't be like a new country guy. I'll be an old country guy, and or or were you to get into ska, or were you to get into punk, or were you get into hip hop? Uh, the whole idea of entering a subculture, and 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 you know. Broadcasting that through the way you dress or the music divides us into tribes and you choose your side and I choose my – like it feels ridiculous now to think that that's how it would happen. I think it still goes on more than guys you're in my age would suspect. I think young people still divide up a little bit more along musical lines than that, although I think music is less the be-all and end-all of that than it once was. Yeah. But the good thing I think is that although the subcultures still go on, the genre – Walls are much lower. And I think even people who are like mostly into, say, you know, dance music still check out other things now and then and they don't really perceive the vast differences. One thing that somebody pointed out to me that I thought was fascinating is just the, you know, the decline of the of the bricks and mortar record store. You know, we, which we can lament in a lot of different ways. One of the things that, about a record store is that in a record store, the Records are organized by classification, right? So you go to the country section, you go to the rock section, sure. you go to the world music section. And, the, and that kind of reified the idea that these were all existing divisions in the world. Whereas, in fact, they were just sort of taxonomical conveniences, right? Because you had to order, organize the store somehow. <laughs> so, And this seemed to be the most effective thing to do. But in fact, there's so much blur at the edges of all of those categories, which now, we're, which now we live in all the time in that blur. But, but then it, lots of signals came to us to suggest that those really were different kingdoms that were at war with each other. Yeah, but you know, like punk was having a conversation with punk about punk and hip hop was talking about hip hop to hip hop. And if we've gotten rid of those sections in the store, that's now reflected in the music itself. You know, you sort of saw like, pop make a really, really hard turn into hip-hop and hip-hop make a really, really hard turn into pop. And, and like now it's not even interesting anymore to – I mean you can start talking about like what's the real hip-hop, you know? I mean I think it's always interesting. I think that conversation is still going on. Yeah. I think we hear it now the more the way that professional musicians tend to hear it because musicians listen to music differently than listeners do because they're often 
listening to see if they can pick up on a on a trick or a twist or an innovation that somebody's made. And they'll, they'll often have listened much more widely than sort of civilians do. And now we can hear that in the music because there's this kind of blend and blur. You know, the, the incredible influence of hip-hop on country over the past five years or so is really pronounced. And it's fascinating to follow that and see where country will let itself go and where it won't let itself go yeah. in picking up those influences and how the audience responds to that and how that changes the whole sort of cultural positioning of the music all of that stuff you know we can follow that happening in real time and i think it happens much more fluidly in a, in a much sort of like jumpier easier to see way that than it used to and and you used to sort of have to be a specialist who would like watch slowly as something from the underground seeped into the mainstream you know the way that sort of you know to take the classic example that like indie college rock in in the 80s gradually through REM and et cetera, et cetera, you reached that nirvana moment where suddenly the underground sound was the mainstream sound. Yeah. But, and to most people that seemed like it kind of came out of nowhere, but anybody who was following the other stuff knew that this was actually just sort of a, a, rever- a, 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 a topsy-turvy happening. Yeah. Now, you can, now everybody can see that a little more clearly, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 things have never seemed more, What's what's that? The work, you know, everything sort of dissolves into everything melts, you know. <laughs> All the solid melts into air. That's it. Yeah. yeah. But what happens to uh, <laughs> what happens to our thing, or specifically your thing, in that environment? Let, I mean, let's not talk about what happens to the, the music in this environment. But if we can now kind of uh, understand that the discussion of music, where you found a career, was facilitated by a series of market conditions, you're now kind of forced to kind of take these thoughts and essays and and discussions out into the marketplace in a different way. You know, you're you're filing with some of the the best of the last places that will publish think pieces and places that will publish serious popular musical criticism as they get winnowed away. I think because your work is very good, you're still published widely. Where's it going to be in five or 10 years? Yeah, I don't know. I would say that there are still websites that come along that I wasn't expecting. You know, I think that Grantland has become a great site for cultural criticism over the past couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I didn't see that the sports website was going to turn into that, you know, and and lots of the sort of younger, sort of not, you know, well-paid, but, but very active sort of thinky websites do a lot of cultural criticism as well. So it's still happening. The question is more, is this a profession anymore? Is that going to be right. a thing? And, you know, when young people ask me how they get into this business, like I basically say, I don't think you can. Yeah. You know, you, you can do this. You can definitely publish things and you can write about music. But if you're thinking that that's going to be your career, odds are that you're going to need another career along with yeah. that. You know, it's, it's just because there isn't a specialized market that will pay you reasonably anymore. And yeah, and I'm lucky that I am, you know, old enough <laughs> that by the time these conditions had changed this much, I was well established enough that I can get people to pay me to do it. Yeah. But even I'm thinking you know, in the, in not so far in the back of my head that it's, you know, necessary to expand and, and to, I don't want to, partly because it's a little bit of a young person's game, music criticism, and you don't keep track of the trends and that kind of thing as well as you do when you're in your twenties, once you pass that, but also just kind of like, yeah, I don't think that this can be a sustaining career on its own for the rest of my life and you know when i'm thinking about my next book it's, it's going to be much more generally cultural right and not music exclusive because i think that that's just a necessary evolution to go through at this point 
Because it's still a value add. If it was once a value add to you know a Rolling Stone that had a celebrity on the cover and a bunch of reviews on the back that told you what to buy, and then for the people who wanted it, there were more thoughtful essays in between. And so all that other stuff that made financial sense was subsidizing the essay. Well, in Grantland, there's still sports journalism that you know is is paying the bills. Like you're, if you're competing with BuzzFeed lists like on on a click by click basis, I don't think that the music essay can hold its own. Yeah, I mean, I you know we have this general problem with. With long form, right? Yeah. And, and I think the interesting thing, I know the optimistic thing compared to even two, three years ago, is I feel an energy in the industry around trying to preserve long form work as a form and figuring out how it fits into a business model for any publication, thinking like, okay, so we have our click bait that we that we use and we have our, our photo galleries from the red carpet and we have our lists and and all of those things and that that kind of churns through and then depending on on the publication like once a day once a week yeah we also invest in something larger and that's kind of a slow attempt to reinvent that synergy you know that used to happen automatically in magazines but at least there are minds set towards that and it's valued and they're trying to work it you know not here not in in canada Canada, but yeah yeah yeah. but yeah and i think that you know the the great thing about that is that there's clearly an appetite for it among a portion of the readership yeah you know that that's not actually going away and and young people still read and arguably read more you know, and so there's lots there's lots of reason to think that this can be worked out in some way. It's just not going to look the same way. Speaking about here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was personally let down when you left the Globe and Mail for reasons that you you know don't really have to concern yourself with. But the fact that you were there and you were writing stuff intelligently about cultural touch points that were relevant to me, and not in a let's explain this to to you know the boomers kind of a voice it allowed me to imagine that that institution might move into the hands of people who I related to and were sort of peers of mine or people who had a sensibility. And that there, that, that, that there might be another generation of the Globe and Mail when like, oh, finally, we're, we're through all that. And now I can pitch stories about you know my topics that will be of interest to people like me. And, and there weren't a lot of other people at the Globe that I could kind of you know bank those hopes on. And then you, know, you left. And I'm curious what you can tell me about the circumstances uh, surrounding that. Well, you know, there's a couple of things. Um, I want to do this without, you know, I don't really blame anybody at the Globe for what happened except for perhaps the publishers. <laughs> um, but um, essentially I'd been wanting to tell, you know, I was there for a long time. I got there when I was under 30 and I'm in my early mid 40s now. So, and I left last year. So I'd been there for a long time and I'd been thinking of leaving for a long time. You know, sort of ever since the book came out, it seemed like, okay, I have a career going on that seems like it has some prospects. My problem was that even though I can't complain at all about how I was compensated at the Globe, I'm very bad at saving money. And so I didn't have like a nest egg to yeah. leave with, you know, to sort of start a freelance career. Um, and so when for the second time in a few years, the Globe offered a round of buyouts last year, I just decided, okay, this is what I can use to sort of launch myself into being writing full time. Because the thing about my career at the Globe is that my job there was as an editor, um, and I had a good editing job. I worked for the Weekend Focus section, which meant that I got to work with all the best writers on the paper and on a weekly cycle rather than daily cycle and really do interesting work. But it wasn't my work, you know. And when I wrote for the Globe, 
it was kind of on a semi-volunteer basis. And one of the reasons I hung around for so long was that I figured eventually that I would be offered a writing job. And for various reasons and out of various rationalizations, that never happened. But that's absurd. Um, yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I don't want to be a prima donna. No, you can't it, you say know? that, and and, you, and I don't want to sound um, like just like 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 super fanish here. But we can talk about this sort of objectively. Like, if a newspaper has a critic working for them as an editor who launches a book that reaches the kind of success yours did, where you know maybe they could kind of dismiss well these are like little literary criticism circles, but no, you've got like. The guy's going on the Colbert show and, you know, James Franco is giving you recommendations from red carpets. And meanwhile, university professors are assigning it in class. It is incredibly rare for a work of criticism and a work of criticism about criticism (laughs) for, for it to be that popular. You would think that for a newspaper to employ somebody who becomes one of the hottest music critics in the world would be a good thing for that newspaper. And and that they would say, oh, isn't it wonderful that this person who we have nurtured and given a job to all these years is now this uh, internationally renowned person. Let's publish their writing. And, and there's no shortage of names at the Globe and Mail who achieved that earlier in their careers. Yeah. I mean, you know, the funny thing, you know, there were, there were dynamics involved – um, you know, Robert Everett Green was the music critic for a really long time, and I, you know, and I admire Robert's work a lot, and understood why nobody was in a hurry to push him aside to, to but give me his job. But eventually, he left that job, moved and moved into general feature writing, and at that that was sort of the point where I thought mm, there's kind of a natural succession here, and and things didn't happen that way. Partly because I had stopped doing the volunteer writing. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, I was like, I can write for other places that I'll be more well compensated and and will all make an impact on a different audience and so because i hadn't i had stopped sort of knocking on the door yeah. all the time then when the door was open somebody else had been knocking on it so and i understand all of that i think the sad thing is that this was just really a, a sign of both the newspaper situation but also like how arts coverage was being valued or not valued at the globe during that regime and so what there was no appetite for whatsoever was like adding a job to the art section. You know, I, I had a lot of supportive editors and people who were like, we'd love to do this, but they are not going to give us the budget to to move you over. I appreciate you know? this is an awkward question for me to ask yeah. you to answer. But like, did, did they not know who you are? I, you know, I think that um, the supportive editors understood where I was at and that I had a following and all of that kind of thing. And perhaps some of the editors further up the chain were less aware. They were, they were aware and, and, you know, everybody at the Globe was very supportive and congratulatory and all of these things about the success. Yeah. But I don't think the people at the top necessarily felt that that – I just think it wasn't really on their radar in the same yeah. way. And they just don't think they, they – felt the sort of logic of it in the same way. But, you know, who who am I to judge? And I also, you know, in some ways, you know, what I miss about writing for The Globe is writing for people in Toronto and people in Canada. You know, I'm working mostly for American publications right now. And that means I can't write about local things that, you know, that would, you know, young artists who it wouldn't necessarily make sense to sort of trumpet them too loudly to an international audience yet. Right. But to say, you know, watch for this 
Canadian up and comer, I don't really have a venue to do that in. And I miss that yeah. part of my role. I'm just know? picturing you like doing the Colbert show on a Monday and then like copy editing somebody's article on a Tuesday. I, no offense to copy editors or, or to just the work of an editor, but like it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. I mean, and, and it's not about deference to success. It's about do you give a shit about young readers? You know, my own selfish interest is I'd like the Globe to be a place that I could write the kind of stuff I want to write for. But do they not care what anybody under a certain age wants to read or cares about? And, and I, you know, for me, like your departure was like, oh, I guess they don't. Well, I think there's been some change in that recently, you know, in the small ways that anything happens at a newspaper these days. Um, you know, Alex Malakta is writing a weekly column in the in the art section. Oh, I didn't now. know that. She's great. And, yeah, and she's great. And she writes about music and other things and, you know, and brings a young feminist approach to it you know and super talented and imaginative and i'm super happy that she's doing that the book section is now being run by young editors who have a different agenda than the globe had for a long time so there's stuff that's happened in the arts coverage that i think is encouraging yeah, Jer- the editors jared and mark there are, are uh, jared bland and mark medley are, are they're of the sensibility like they, they care about the, you know yeah. what a younger reader would, would want to read for sure i think they, it was slow in coming and yeah and you know in my case too slow yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I sort of aged out of the young demographic <laughs> while waiting for that recognition to happen. Yeah. Uh, this is cliche, but I, of course I swore when I was younger when music seemed so real and important that I will never allow myself to become one of those people who um, doesn't care about this. And I thought that that must happen gradually to people. <laughs> it happened overnight when I had kids. Right. Like I went from a person – like I have no idea – I, I hear names of artists now. Like it was just, and I realized that it was it, what it was about was uh, time, that it was about little pockets of my life where I was able to explore and listen to music. And I, I realized that about podcasting. When I hear from people, and, and you know, we think about it's about we have this conversation about ideas and about policy and stuff, and then you realize it's about the fact that this person jogs. Uh, you know, if we got rid of like jogging and commuting, I don't know what would happen to radio and podcasting. But. Yeah, I mean, it's funny for me, like podcasting has come to be actually sort of a rival interest to music because because I live alone and childless. <laughs> um, so I so I have a lot of time where I'm doing things around the house and that would have been time often where I would put records on but now I'm more often put a podcast on because that's actually like having people in the house. It's like yeah, a right. conversation. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's for me, it's part of, been a bit of a, of a handicap to, to keeping up with all the music that I should be keeping up with. <laughs> is, is there any part of it? Like, I remember reading some interview with the cartoonist, Chris Ware, where he was talking about being a, a music fan when he was younger. He's like, I, I reached a certain age where just like some dude with a guitar just wasn't speaking to me anymore. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's true. I think that, you know, it's, I particularly with sort of guitar rock, Sometimes listening as a critic, it's something I have to watch out for. Like sometimes I feel like it's my younger self or some version of my younger self like yammering at me and I just want to shut it up. Right. <laughs> you know? Whereas we know because of my self-loathing hostility towards that relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put your guitar down, I don't care about your girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas, you know, when listening to listening to sort of pop or to to hip hop or even country, like I don't feel like that. That's not a version of me. That's somebody else. I'm I'm interested in Yeah, it's less implicating. Say. So yeah, you can, yeah, it's yeah. more exploratory. Yeah. That's and also a- it doesn't feel to me like it's repeated. I think when you're really, really into the history of a form as you get older you start hearing the ways in which all of the moves get reiterated in yeah. every generation and you start to have that reaction of oh that's just this plus this that's you know you know there's a little bit of of, of sonic youth and echo and the bunny men and blah, blah 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 and you get that kind of dismissive attitude and forget that 
every time a, a new generation of people discovers those moves, they discover them in their own way and they mean different things. And, and But it's easy to get that just like, ah, I've heard it all before. You have to leave it alone for a decade so it gets weird again <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and alienates yeah. you and then maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Jesse. That is your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. Email me. I read them all. I respond when I can. And I am at jesse at jessebrown.ca. You'll find me on Twitter at Jesse Brown. And the website for the show is at canadalandshow.com. Our sponsor today was Squarespace. I make this show with Christopher DeMello. And the next episode in which I have a major announcement about the future of Canada Land will be up on Monday. If you like this show, recommend it. <laughs>